podcast, Dr. Rishon Richards talks about learning for the jobs of future. So stay tuned. Welcome everyone to Jobs of Future podcast. Today we have with us Rishon Richards. Um, doctor, so a brief bio, Dr. Richards is an adjunct assistant professor at Teachers College, Columbia University and associate at Columbia University School of Professional Studies. He's also a chief learning officer at Explain Everything, which he co-founded. And Rishas, uh, Rishon has an uh, EdD in Instructional Technology and Media from Teachers College. Columbia University and Adam uh, in learning and teaching from Harvard University and a BA in music from Columbia University. He serves on the board of Montclair Kimberly Academy in New Jersey and uh, ISTE program committee and previously served on Apple's Distinguished Educators Advisory Board. Dr. Rishan Richards is an educator, researcher, app designer. His years in, uh, of experience in school as math teacher and technology integration intersection intersected with his research on screencasting and formative assessment to inspire the creation of Explain Everything, a connection of one of his life's goal, uh, and we will talk about uh, that as well, of uncovering how emerging technologies can be used to capture and, medi uh, and mediate discourse that data-driven approaches are not capable of measuring. Rishan collaborated with Stephen uh, Valentin to write leading um, online leading the learning Leading by Learning, a multi-touch book about organizational leadership and schools. Their follow-up book, Blending Leadership, Six Simple Beliefs of for Leading Online and Off, was published by Josie Bass Willey in July 2016. Rishans and Steve's next book examines the intersection of teaching and sales profession. With that, um, uh, Rishan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Beautiful. So let's let's talk about your journey. I think this is this is fabulous. I, like I had, it it has uh, music in it. It has uh, learning, teaching, sales, like all the interesting keywords put together. So love to love to uh, hear from you your journey. Sure. So my my journey is you know it, it goes along many different paths, but I feel like they they're they're all connected. You know, undergrad. I think I I wanted. I thought I was going to be pre-med, you know, like, like, like my, uh, my parents probably would have preferred considering they're both physicians. Luckily I'm the youngest of three and my, my oldest sister did become a, a proper doctor. I, I became a different kind of doctor in the end. Um, but I realized I, I was really always interested in music. I, I played the drums and eventually the guitar and piano. And I realized while at my undergraduate studies, my learning came from the friendships and the networks and mm. learning how to learn and the actual subject matter I realized wasn't as important. So I decided to focus on something I really wanted to dive in and learn more about. Before I got to Columbia, I couldn't read music and I didn't play the keyboard or any classical instrument and I ended up majoring in composition. So for me, I just, I wanted to learn. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, I ended up uh, getting a job as a school teacher, as a fifth grade math teacher and a low level tech support person repairing inkjet printers and plugging in cat five cables and doing a lot of turning things off and on again to make them work. This is, you know, this is around uh, 2000. 
And if, if you can imagine what, what a small school's infrastructure was, it was enough for somebody with zero training to be able to handle. Uh, but, but because of that, I got really interested in the intersection of teaching and mm. technology and eventually went and got my master's degree uh, focusing on that intersection and then returned to schools as an administrator focusing specifically on how technology could be integrated into teaching, learning, and assessment. From there, uh, as I got more and more serious about the things I was noticing and doing in my own practice, uh, I started the doctoral program uh, over at Teachers College Columbia University. And while I was focusing my research agenda, I, at the same time in my school practice, was focused in, on this practice called screencasting, mm -hmm. which is recording what's happening on your screen with audio, often used in tutorials, and with whiteboarding. So a lot of interactive whiteboards were starting to become pervasive in schools. And they were primarily used as teacher-directed material. So mm. uh, an instructor would get up and use it as their teaching thing. But I was far more interested in what my students could do with it. So instead of me being at the board writing, I would have groups of students come up. This is in an eighth grade math class. And they would have to record and write out how they were solving problems. And what I learned was I found out so much more about them as learners of math by how they planned, spoke, articulated, paused, corrected missteps than any traditional worksheet or, or quiz or test would ever show. So I said, this is what I want to explore. And that's what I began studying at, at Columbia. Fast forward a couple of years, the first iPad came out. And this experience of screencasting and whiteboarding, which previously required a desktop, a USB mic, a projector, a uh, interactive whiteboard, all of those elements look to be merged into one form. And I said, here is the perfect device for me to really do some interesting research. It's a new, um, it's a new form factor that's going to be used you know, in, uh, in recreation, but also in education. And let's see if this phenomenon of screencasting, whiteboarding, and now mobility, hmm. if there's anything to it. And the problem was the type of software that I would need to actually research this phenomenon did not hmm. exist. So I started contacting people to figure out what would it take to build like just a research instrument, a, an MVP mm. that I could do research with. And these guys in Poland who had been making some iPad apps of, uh, on their own that they had designed, I'd written a review and blogged about it. And they, I'd been in contact with them as I was doing presenting and sharing. Uh, they would often give me promo codes and things like that so mm. I could help market them. Um, and eventually I included them on my list. I said, hey, there's this thing I want to study. You know, what would it cost if I, if uh, for you guys to like build this this research instrument? And they said, well, actually, you know, one of our products is 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 not doing so well, but we think it's got sixty percent of what you're looking to do already baked into it. Would you want to partner and build something together? And I had no business experience. I, you know, didn't know what I was doing. They said, all you have to do is wire this amount of money to this bank in Europe. And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. That sounds, <laughs> it doesn't sound like a scam. Um, I, I didn't tell my wife or anything, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I did it. And, um, you know, within, within months from that moment, um, you know, it was only a few months later. And right shortly after the iPad 2 re was released, um, this app called Explain Everything was launched. And um, no marketing plan behind it, no sales plan behind it. But fortunately, because uh, what I believe were really thoughtful understanding of teaching, learning, assessment, and what open-ended experiences could be like, um, it started to pick up a lot of grassroots traction. And so 
you know, we went from having, you know, 10 downloads the first month to 100 to 1,000. Um, and then, you know, you know, we soon crossed two, three million users. Then we got outside venture funding turned into multi-platform. So now we've done, you know, two rounds of, of, of venture capital. And at this point, you know, we have a pretty significant user base and it's also started to branch out of K-12. Nice. So, so what, what, what is explain everything? Um, if you, if, if you can walk us through that. That's a, that's a fabulous so story, by the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cool. Thanks. Um, so explain everything is a, is a mobile interactive screencasting platform mm -hmm. that has real time collaborative whiteboarding. So mm -hmm. it, its core experience is being able to whiteboard, insert any kind of content, any types of files, video, websites, and everything can be moved around, scaled, rotated, and you can capture your voice as you're talking through it, and you can mm. share it anywhere. So it's, um, you know, it's a platform that was designed to not make you change your existing habits or workflows, but like nice. it can slide right in. Um, and that, that was always kind of the intention. Part of that was understanding schools and their complexity that, you know, you're gonna have a tough time trying to create change <laughs> and new habits in people. So like, how do you find tools that fit into existing uh, and often messy workflow so that that was a big influence in the design. Uh, the, the use cases go from making instructional videos, short tutorials, giving mm -hmm. feedback, brainstorming, um, you know, doing follow-ups, you know, even now uh, working more closely with our, with our sales team, uh, we use the tool in all of our own internal work. So even just doing like quick customer follow-ups, like we use the tool to do like, hey, here are the notes we had and here's a 30 second like recap. And and, and you ship it. And um, so it's really about how do you take, you know, these very like humane moments of mm. conversation, um, you know, friendliness, natural, like it's all around this idea of authenticity that it's not, you're not trying to make some like polished, crazy bells and whistles, you know, multimedia thing. But like just in that moment, like you, Vishal, could make a 30 second, mm. you know, thank you video saying, hey, thanks for appearing on the podcast. And you would send it to me and like, I wouldn't expect you to make some crazy $30,000 production video. Like if you just sent a note, I'd be like, okay, yeah, that's cool. That's your voice. That's your words. And that's, you know, that's you writing something. So it, it, it's been pretty neat to see that this idea has been taken in and, and applied in contexts where there's five-year-olds, where there's, you know, MIT professors, and then mm -hmm. there's, you know, high performing business people all just trying to get a message across, make people understand them better and not worry so much about it being like polished or to a degree artificial, but rather it being more authentic. And that's, that's fabulous. And I think I've, I've, I've just put a note to, to check it out and then I'll definitely send you a thank you note over explain everything. So that's, <laughs> yeah, there you go. That, that, that's pretty <laughs> no, cool. That wasn't, that wasn't meant to be a plug or, or, or a demand or anything, but I was, but you know, it, it's one of those things you think about the moves, you know, it's, 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 it's a neat idea. Like I'm, 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 I'm already buying it. So, and thank you so much for making me aware about that. So what is a chief learning officer in, in something like this? What's, what's that role entail? If you can walk us through that. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. Sure. So I, I would say the application of chief learning officer in my context is a little bit different than perhaps 
the traditional CLO at, at large enterprises. I mean, typically the CLO is looking at the integration of what is the company strategy and then what is the learning plan or objectives that will align to the employees meeting that. So whether it's uh, training, recruitment, um, coaching, all of those kind of elements are generally um, elements that would fall under the chief learning officer. Hmm. But it's it's much more than just saying like, oh, there's it's just about getting content out or figuring out some you know learning platform. It's really about finding the balance between what are the overall objectives of trying to be met, and then how do you ensure that there's going to be effective learning, bottom up and top down, uh, in, in order to meet that. I think uh, you know one, one of my one of my mentors and colleagues and somebody who I've taught courses with, who's uh, who's uh, Dean Jason Wingard uh, at the School for Professional Studies. You know he he's got a great framework about. Uh, he calls it the continuous integration of learning and strategy. Mm. So historically, a company would come up with an end-to-end strategy for this is what we're doing, and that you know maybe even after it was defi- defined or even put into practice, then like the learning comes in second, as opposed to how are you ongoing like whatever the strategic move is at the same time in parallel, thinking about what type of learning needs to take place in order um, for that strategy to proceed, and it's just. Maybe it's just semantics or or just a reframe, but I think it is kind of a mindset awareness um, in order to think about like, wow, this is what we want to do. And you're constantly asking, how are we going to get our people to be able to do it all all the way? Interesting, interesting. so one thing that 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 I was I was thinking about when when you were discuss, uh, describing about explaining everything was so it's a great platform for expressing if you if you want to learn something right and you so instead of going through a formal route of uh, this 17 month course or whatever you can just quickly scribble something and send send someone something like that what were some of some of your findings uh, for some platform like that has it changed your perception about uh, how someone could learn something um, like before the, and after the between before the fact and after the fact of uh, explain everything. I, what I think it's different and it, it gets so nuanced when you think about like video based learning or platforms where people are, you know, being the recipients of any kind of video based instruction. Our thinking all all along was never to be designing or controlling or to a degree even suggesting content. Hmm. Um, we think people subject matter experts, whether they're in business or you're a classroom teacher, like, you know, you know the material best and also mm. you know how to reach students right. best. We're trying to be um, almost a catalyst or an amplifier in between there. We don't want to dictate what needs to be taught or what, or what needs to be learned, but rather give you a crazy new set of choices in ways that you can get that information to your intended audience. So I think What's maybe it's been more that it's been confirmed or validated that um, people do just want um, really good tools in order to get what's in their mind mm. into the mind of that audience. And then also to know that they've actually taken it in the way that they intended. So, you know, like, t- take, a, take just even an email dialogue, right? So say you sent me an email message, right? A paragraph of text. Mm. So, so there's the time when you, you typed it, but also you're transferring things into a, a linear narrative. Mm. It's words, it's symbols. Uh, I don't know your voice tone. Mm. Uh, I don't know your speed. Uh, I don't know the setting in which you're in. 
you know, all of those things get subtracted. And so I'm going to read it in my own setting, in mm. my own time. You don't know what kind of mood I'm in, like right. all of that. Yeah. And so yeah. all, all of these other kind of subtleties um, might impact the way that I receive the message. Mm. And I'm not saying that a tool like Explain Everything guarantees anything, but what it does do is you can convey more of that nuance by using video. I, mean, I think even just using video in general, like we could, ha we could do this conversation over a text message exchange, but we mm. choose not to, right? Mm. Because we know there's things about, you can be a little bit more just, just in time. Mm. Our video cameras are on those who are listening. You don't necessarily see us, but like, you know, Vishal and I, we can see each other. We right. can, I can read his responses to what I'm saying. His, his, his facial cues, his verbal cues, all of that. And that's going to impact the dialogue. So it's not that there's a right or wrong way to do it, right. but we all could be so attuned to these differences and understand that. Uh, so there's, there's this thing from uh, Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. So there's mm. the content, but mm. the way that it's transferred or mediated has just as much impact on the way it's received as the content itself. Interesting. And, and I think, so you are an, an, an educator on, on one side, right? And, and you are educator in a very traditional template of things, right? And on the other side, you are creating something which is disrupt, which is disrupt, disrupting learning, education, or at least communicating. What, how, how you want to, you want to look at this? What is like? How is it, is uh, that changing your perception of the learning or the future of learning? Seeing seeing your one side versus seeing your other side. We'll resume after a short break. This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. I, I think time has been the most interesting thing to pay attention to when it comes to people's habits or expectations or to a degree willingness to try new things. Hmm. I'll go back again seven years the first time multi-touch devices were getting some attention, um, especially in school settings. So like take even the iPad. Back then, in addition to like thinking about the content or experiences you might want to create, you would have to explain to a person like how to operate a multi-touch device because mm. not everybody had a smartphone or an iPad or an iPhone then. So you had to actually do two layers of teaching. One was about the access point, And then the mm. second was about the experience you were trying to educate them about. Five, six years later, because of societal growth, norms, what people have access to and are used to, like now, if you wanted to show some experience with the iPad, I don't have to worry about telling people like, oh, you actually have to tap the square. Mm, <laughs> and so because of that, all of a sudden, you're, you're creating a different starting point from which to build your, your scaffolded experience. So it's, it's being hyper aware that even something that may not have worked well five or six years ago, the, the, the norms have changed. So you can revisit things that may have been, fa not failed, but maybe the market or the right. audience wasn't ready for a short time ago uh, and now is more normal. I see the same thing even from the sales side. Um, so many consumer habits, especially when it came to software, the idea of subscribing and paying year over year mm. when I used to buy a CD and I'd get it mailed to me and I, I owned it, it was mine. Right. And then even in between, I would buy the software and I would download the installer. I would have it. It is mine. And the mindset around, well, actually, no, you know, companies, 
both to build a scalable business model, but also to continue providing and improving the service. Well, like you need to have a more uh, stable, you know, revenue model. Hmm. Things like Netflix, Spotify, all of those have changed people's habits and understanding of like the type of experience you get when you subscribe. So now right. you have to do far less convincing around what subscription could or couldn't mean because the society outside has caught up on mm. that understanding. And so it's, it's just, you know, three years ago, I would have said, ah, subscription and education, that's, that's right. a nightmare. And yeah. like th three years later, it's like, okay, the, 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 the playing field has changed. Interesting, interesting. So what's the, what is your take on the future of learning? I think you, you are deeply engraved in pretty much like a, 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 a wide spectrum of you are seeing use cases that are emerging from, from this app side of things. And you're also dealing with students uh, in, in a traditional template about their struggles with, with learning and what's going on. What are you seeing and, and where, do you, where are you seeing this learning going uh, in future? So in the, in the situations that I'm, you know, like optimistic or pleased when I encounter, hmm. it's a, an ability to, to differentiate between learning and education. So education is far more tied to institutionalized systems, hmm. whereas learning is a human behavior. And so people's definition of, of what learning means, I think, has to has to become a little bit more broad in that every moment is a learning moment that mm. you can't say like okay oh now i'm going to go learn this but the whole time you're absorbing experience your senses are perceiving things you're hearing things you're interpreting you're making all these calculations and taking prior knowledge past experience making pro making probability um statements in your mind to think of like what your next decision and those degree are all a function of learning. There's some mm. things that become like instinct or like, you know, yeah, if, if something's coming at you, you flinch. All right, that's, that's those are like more like, <laughs> um, you know, human instincts. So maybe there's a separation there. But recognizing that learning is just ongoing and always, and you, you, don't, you don't actually stop learning for the most part um, mm. at, at any moment. And then I think once you, get, when people get settled that, then you start to get more, you can get more distinguished about, um, formal learning, sitting in a classroom, signing up for a course versus informal or anecdotal and realizing not one is not better than the other. Hmm. And it's just that your ability to just be, have this like meta awareness or metacognitive awareness of hmm. what's going on in that moment and not to assign value of it, but just recognizing what it is so that you are more aware of the context in which you are learning. Interesting. Inter um very cool, by the way. So uh, one thing that I was thinking about when you were talking about sales and, and how, how sales folks are getting challenged with understanding this new paradigm of sales now and not the traditional touching and feeling uh, product that you are buying. Um, so it brings me to another topic that's very close to my heart is about like it's reskilling. And we had a small conversation before the, before the, before the talk was that um, when um, the shelf life of a skill is shrinking, Right. Uh, and then and our attention span, maybe uh, our attention span is also getting impacted because of the amount of information that, that, that we are we are gobbling or we are sort of um, exposed to nowadays. Uh, how is how is that impacting the learning or what's what's your take on that? Like, where do you see it go? We'll resume after a short break. 
This part of the podcast is brought to you by First Friday Fair, fastest AI-powered way to find your next opportunity. Check out the website firstfridayfair.tao.ai and find your next dream job. Let's get back to the podcast. So, so when it comes to reskilling, you know, there, there's I, I always think of two dimensions. One is augmenting your existing skill set, so it's still mm-hmm. it's still within the same realm, but it's more right. about um, having it adapt or grow within the same context because that's that's what's demanded versus right. versus the market completely shifting so you almost do have to um, gain a new set of competencies but still working towards the same original objective um, and I think just even that kind of maybe it's an oversimplified duality to look at it but I think again your the, the approach is different I think in the case of where you're augmenting your existing skill set, this is where, say you had a four-hour chunk of time, right? And typically in that four hours, you could probably have a good measure of how productive, how much work you can get done towards your goals in those four hours, right? right. But then imagine you subtract, took one of those dedicated hours and de- dedicated purely to intentional formal learning. Mm. The ideal state is when that dedicated chunk of time to some sort of formal learning, mm. your remaining three hours, you're not only going to meet what you used to be able to do in four hours, but actually mm. possibly exceed it. So like, I'm, I'm, I've picked arbitrary time limits here, but I'm just trying to provide right. like a model of like that instead of thinking of like when you go to learn as like that's extra or you have to go off site to some PD mm. event right. or take certification courses at night, like when you're augmenting or building on top of your existing skill set, it should be seen as part of the work. Now, a, a bigger shift where, where like the game has changed, but the goals are the same. Um, here's where uh, the, the agility or the, 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 the just-in-timeness or the immediacy of a, of a organization to be able to say, okay, our goals are these. The, the rules have been changed because of outside forces. Um, we've got really smart, talented people but they don't, the existing competencies don't align hmm. with the new rules of the game. And that's a different type of problem to solve uh, because what, you're not going to do 100% turnover, right? Like that, that's not going to happen. Um, well, in most cases, I hope. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but so, that, so, so, so then the challenge becomes is how do you get the right subject matter experts who know what needs to be done? How do you get what's in their mind because they're the best at communicating it, or maybe they need somebody. They might be the best at doing it, but they might not be the best at communicating it. So right. you have to like figure all these things out, and then how do you make that information um, shareable, consumable, and also to the point of being able to demonstrate understanding of whatever was shared in like a quick way. So uh, I don't have all the answers to this, but I can tell you kind of certain patterns that I've seen that have addressed this in an interesting way, which is you, you, you can take the traditional flow of you know, training and delivery and how that goes. So typically there is, somebody's a subject matter expert, somebody knows, knows the content, and then some team has to prepare materials based on that. Then it's upgrade, uploaded to some platform. Hmm. Then you have to hope that your audience actually goes there and watches it. You might be able to measure that they watched it, and um, you might even get them to measure that they paid enough attention to fill out a quiz or a test. Hmm. But it often stops at the point of, can they actually be effective with it? 
and probably the only final measure is like is there some sort of return ROI or uh, return mm. on learning even right so like mm. okay is there an impact to you know their whatever their existing job function is is measured in whatever performance management uh, exists um, so then you have to look at that flow and figure out how can you use technology to shorten some of those cycles so that you get to the point of the subject matter expert to that impact to revenue or whatever whatever that final measure is mm. um, but look at it, break it down into the steps and solve the problem at the right place, not necessarily mm. requiring an overhaul. And so the companies that I've seen doing this interesting are really shortening the cycle from the subject matter expert to getting it to that audience quickly. And like that's mm. where you know, just-in-time video um, uh, really comes into play and like ha tools that didn't exist a few years ago and even habits that didn't exist a few years ago um, are more prevalent. There's probably seasoned employees who three years ago to get them to film a video on their smartphone mm. would have been like pulling teeth. But like because of social, recreational, cultural norms around media, now it's a different story. So you couldn't probably have asked your CEO to record, you know, a, a, a one minute video on their phone and like upload it to, you know, companies cloud storage because it would have seemed like what in the world is this? you know, cra crazy technology you're asking, but now, now the game is different. So like, mm -hmm. oh wait, that is something you could do. Um, so, it, and the trade-off is um, that some people can't get over is um, you, you probably can't do it as polished. Mm. Um, if, you're if you're trying to be fast, it's at the, at, it's at the um, expense of polish to some degree, uh, at least in the beginning. And that, again, now you get into company culture and, um, you know, how, how that is weighed, like, Okay, you can be more authentic and more immediate, but you know, at, at the exchange of uh, of polish and 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 tightness, but then which is going to have the better impact on those goals? And that only the company and the culture can dictate that. Interesting, interesting. So let's let's talk about uh, let's take stick on 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 the business for a while. So I think one of the thing I, I'm a businessman. You're also a businessman. I think reskilling reskilling your workforce is one of, one of the one of the. For, one of the one of my goal that my my folks stay competitive and and i think uh, i was talking to one of the futurists and he was talking he was talking about uh, what the future could learn from the past if at all so he 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 sort of talked about hey do you know when the horse carts were getting replaced with 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 automotive cars um then folks had about 10 years to get attuned to this this new way to drive or to to sort of travel from point a to point b right and then and if we, if we talk about now that shelf life of new skill is not it's it's probably now months uh, if not weeks already to when something goes obsolete and something new comes in and we hear like we hear a lot uh, of of sort of stories about how someone could lose ground and then they realize that they are not they are not competing or they're not competitive as come to the new new age of learning so as a business uh, how should someone resolve this idea of learning or keeping keeping their workers at least uh, at the top of their game like what's your what's your take uh, on that so I'll, I'll throw three words and talk about how they they intersect so there's practicing, there's habits, and then there's beliefs. So when it comes to practice, 
my belief or mm. my vision or understanding is that today's modern worker, learner, you know, positive contributor to society um, is always in a, in a learning mindset mm. that realizing in order to create a better life for him or herself, family, friends, better impact in his or her workplace or community, and ultimately, you know, leaving a positive mark on the world, uh, that all depends on one's function and thinking of themselves as a true lifelong learner. True. Now, what that could mean in the beginning is, from a practice standpoint, needing to block off time in the calendar, whether mm. you know, you're on the clock or you're off, where it becomes a regular practice of doing something that's going to make you do whatever you care about better, whether it's professionally, whether it's related to something outside of work, something like that. But you have to almost create artificial structures in order to start to build routines. Eventually, it starts to begin, become a habit where mm. you don't need to you know, have it in there for you to instinctively say, you know what, I am going to spend the next hour listening to Vishal's podcast because you know, when I make that a weekly routine, it's just a great way. I'm doing it on the treadmill, but this is part mm -hmm. of my thing because I know it gives me some interesting insight on a weekly basis, whatever. Like, mm. But it's still, so it starts to become habitual. And then finally, when it becomes to a belief, it's like, I can think of no other way of operating other than learning being, you know, some form of learning practices uh, being a part of the way that I operate. And I think, you know, it's not, it's not the same uh, progression necessarily for, for everybody, but mm. I see this kind of continuum um, as, as a way to break down the way that people approach learning. So I would say that the modern, somebody who wants to um, stay on top of their game and, and it has to start, try to get at least to that middle point where you've got really good habits um, around um, learning and staying up to date. Learning does not mean getting a certification. Learning right. literally might be reading the front page of the Wall Street Journal, right. like, and making certain habits. Being like, your market awareness makes you more fluid in conversation, and now you're better suited to have really great dialogue with, you know, people you know at a different management level who are going to get you in for, you know, they'll get you into that next step in your career. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just right. you have to decide what aligns, but like, it's it'll feel fake and forced at first. But eventually, its value will present itself that you're like, I'm going to make a habit out of this. Interesting. And, and, and so if I'm a business, right, and if, if I'm a good enough business, and, and you give a good point that creating this practice habits and belief system uh, to sort of help someone learn something, uh, like how should, so a business is very tied up with, say, culture, right? So we are, we are a gut-based organization. We have been a gut-based organization now you talk about using, say, data or, or for, for driving decisions. The entire business needs to be re retrained somehow to sort of work with this new paradigm of, of work. You talked about CD, holding a CD versus uh, uh, subscribing to a SaaS solution uh, for learning. How, what are some of, some of the hacks that you could suggest uh, a business could, could, or at least the learning and development folks could, could adopt to deploy these new mechanisms uh, to their existing workforce? I, I don't know if I would call them hacks, but I think it's almost a uh, compromise <laughs> <laughs> where, 
where, where really paying attention to where the audience is mm. and meeting them more halfway. Mm. I think, yeah, on, obviously, if you're a business, like you can have professional expectations of, of your workforce, but some of those are just flat out impossible to police or mm. to, to hold people accountable to. And then you get into a tricky situation where the next time you're trying to be held accountable, everybody rolls their eyes because mm. an impossible situation was set up. So I, I'm, I'm very much into like really understanding the audience and then finding a way to like meet halfway where you are as far as what, where the learning is. I mean, this is going to sound so silly, but like if, if there are already standards and habits as far as the workforce using email or using Cisco Spark as their messaging platform or whatever it is. Mm. Like, even though you wouldn't think of email or synchronous chat as a learning platform, you can still be like, you know what? We're going to figure out a way to make the learning platform like a great experience accessed via, via that point. Mm, and, interesting. you know, it's, it's not convenient. You know, it's messy, but it's the only way to make make it easier for a workforce to start forming habits. Um, if starting habits around areas where it requires so much behavioral change in order to sense the return of value. I mean, that's the other part. Like, you can't put people through it and then have them have no opportunity to recognize their value in having done it. Um, mm. I, I think there's big trouble. Obviously, some entities, like, you have compliance training that you, like, just have to do. But mm. that can be framed appropriately. Like, the same way you approach like annual compliance certifications because there's legal or federal requirements to do it, that needs to be different than like, you know, learning the new you know purchase order process that just got implemented. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're they're very different things. So even that like, instead of always doing the default of like what's easiest or thinking that it has to be the same way because that's easier to scale, I would challenge that. Like it may not not be like sometimes having a more nuanced thing will actually be easier to scale because you'll have greater buy-in. Interesting. One thing that, that I was thinking about, and and, and you talk, you talked about beautifully that certificate is not learning, right? So, but I think one thing that that I face um, personally is many time one of my coworker comes saying, "Hey, there's a two-year program to do learn something." And on one side, I said, I want to help you. That's one of my sides that says that. And the other side, it says, two years is heck of a long time to learn any concept. Like the things world will, world will change in two years. You should find maybe a weekend or two days or a 14 days plan to learn something. Two years for a... And and often I, I get a pushback on this learning piece. Hey, there's a, there's a certificate that they'll get and probably it'll help them. What's your take on like what... How would you handle that situation? And how, do, how, how would you see that situation? So I would look at it from content versus experience. Hmm. So now there could be that that two-year thing has a unique one-of-a-kind certificate that that's the only way to achieve it. Imagine hmm. it's some, you know, some new Cisco certification that for some reason required two years and, um, right. you know, this and that. So th those are on the fringe to me. But if it's something else, it's a different type of skilling certificate for some type of thing. Like, it's really important to understand, is it two years in order to get the content? Or is there something else also happening in those two years that's going to make that person a more valuable member of your workforce because of the networking? Or maybe there's a really great instructor who's, who's the only one mm. who can 
walk through that content in that way. Like that, you know, there are certain instructors, professors who just have a gift. I, I also can think of them as just great storytellers or great, they can take very complex things and make it very pleasant <laughs> to mm. hear about them and learn. So like all I, I, those are all the elements that I would dig into. Like, you know, if it's purely about the content and, and knowing it, I would almost say that there's probably different mechanisms for that particular person um, to get that content and probably at the same level. Um, but if there's those other elements, there's something to the experience that also will bring back value to your company, then I would weigh against it differently. And those are the types of things I would ask about. Like, what are they going to do in two years that these four other alternatives that are doing it over a weekend are doing differently? Right. Interesting. So one thing that uh, that I find myself very lucky of, uh, if at all, is so being a small business, you can execute things relatively easy, easily that compared to the bigger business. So uh, one of the example that that I, I, I faced recently was um, so I was I was trying to figure out what's the true model of learning. And I realized that it's not just the training. It's maybe the getting the right mentors, mentees. It's it may be the um, on job training, like trying to get, carve out work in a way that empowers sort of your, your learning habits and, and what and what not. And I, I said, okay, I, I'll, I'll add a few things. There will be some coaching going around. There will be some structured uh, training and there's will be some, we'll, we'll allocate the work at least 10% or 15% of their time to their aspirational uh, concepts. But bigger companies, it's, 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 then I started talking to my, my sort of counterparts in, in, in relatively bigger companies and almost everyone had this migraine of it's difficult to put together like mentor program is just uh, sitting in the side not not getting much attention nothing is it's very isolated not connected and, and, and what and what not how would a bigger company like that resolve that uh, sort of con this issue of true learning vis-a-vis -vis of um, just content-based consumption dependent learning um, I, I think it all depends on the, the intended outcome. So I, I love that you're talking about this mentorship thing. So another almost traditional model that I've been paying a lot of attention to is apprenticeship, which mm. is, you know, probably one of the best mm. teaching and learning modes there is, but probably the worst mode to scale. <laughs> like it's just, it's so difficult because, because it's, it's so much, you know, it's so personal and so much observation and feedback and, you know, all, all of these things that it, it's all, it's truly almost an impossible thing to scale. However, I look at that, like, you know, you, you look at great mentorship models, great apprenticeship models. And I feel like today versus three, four years ago, there probably are new ways to rethink like, wait a minute. I know we felt it was impossible to scale in 2017, but maybe now, there might be a way to aspire to that type of, you know, very personal, very peer coaching, or it could be, you know, mentor mentee type of relationship. And like, how do you make that happen at scale? I mean, even simple moves. So my company, it, explain everything. We have offices in, in Wrocław, Poland. Uh, I'm right now in an office in Connecticut. We have an office in Manhattan. We have an office in San Diego. And a lot of them are small offices because we've got distributed teams mm. in Poland. It's a larger office. but Often my conversations with my fellow um, leaders take place over video conference, hmm. and you know it, we we won't I don't wouldn't call them official mentoring models or even mentoring sessions, but 
these are things that take place. So even in a large company, you might have, mm. you know, somebody who's based in, in Singapore and somebody who's based in California, but because of their mm. backgrounds, their aspirations, their way of life, like they might be really good, a really good pair. Right. Previously, you wouldn't even have thought about like that as making sense. It's like, right. oh, wait a minute, actually the quality of video chat is improved or the ability to record, you know, like all of these things, like the ability to calendar smartly so that it, you can find the right time, you know, all of these kind of little things that would normally get in the way of getting two people together in the same room. Like there are all these little micro moves that have improved that like, it can just be, you get that much closer to that ideal interaction, which is putting two really thoughtful people in the room together so that they can both become better people. Interesting. Wow. No, I think that 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 makes that makes true sense. So now let's talk about per, like me as a professional, right? So how would how would sort of what are your takes on some of the ways um, learning is shifting? Like for 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 individuals, like how how would they cope up uh, or how would they see look at learning when it comes to jobs of future? Like what what's your take on that? I think. I think regardless, everything is going to get more mobile or the opportunities to be mm. less tethered to a, a desk or even an office or a building um, in order to be able to be effective and productive. Um, I think people's agility in that respect is what's going to be important, that you can shift modes from being you know, highly involved, physical, present, but that your abilities don't get diminished in those moments that you do have to be offsite, that like you don't lose your ability to make impact because you're you're not present, and I think that's that's the that's where like again the technology is not replacing hmm. the interaction, but all of a sudden like as a leader, as a worker, as a contributor, whatever it is, that what used to be kind of almost catastrophic in a way hmm. that like as soon as your physical presence wasn't there for whatever reason, um, that the work stopped or was impacted or delayed or people couldn't get stuff done. And that's just no longer, or that's far less the case, but it requires the leaderships hmm. accepting of, of that kind of norm that like, wow, so-and-so for quality of life needs to be over here um, working out of their home for you know two weeks because X, Y, and Z happened. But actually that's not, that's not going to cause a problem. I'm not, I have no concern about that. Hmm. Like it's just, it's just what it is, but it doesn't, it's not undervaluing presence. I think again, we're, we're a social species. We like being around one another. Uh, and it's not to say like, Oh, everything can be distributed. We no longer need offices or central convening points. I, I think that's false too. Uh, but I think just the mindset that everything does not have to stop because key people are not physically in the room. Like right. the work can continue. Interesting. So, and I, What's your take on the the future of say this big institutions when it comes to training and 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 teaching people? Like, what's what's your? Because I think it's 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 funny. Like, um, I'm advising a couple of university in in putting up their program for data science and and what and whatnot. And I always sort of struggle with this limbo of eighteen months for a program around data science. It's I, like I, I I sort of get this. Um, maybe it's again. It's it should be sh shorter. It should be snappier, quicker. It's more use case based, just in time learning. And 
what's your take where is where is the the future of learning heading to so I, I think you 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 already brought in one of the keywords, which is this idea of just in time. I often talk about immediacy and like mm. it's it's not even just just in time, it's at the right time. Um, so it doesn't <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't mean that it's immediate, but it, mm. it means or like instant, it means that it's happening at the moment it's most helpful. Um, but what I think the almost like the 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 learning design uh, approach has to can't be like all or nothing. There's like, you know, mm. there's a very top down like Oh, we design the curriculum, we deliver it, we measure it. That's how it is. Or there would be the other end of the extreme, which would be everything is just in time. Like, mm. oh no, we just do everything in the moment. Um, there, again, I think there has to be a balance or, or a blend. And like what you do is you, you make everything kicks off with being just in time, more immediate, more uh, being able to sacrifice polish in order to get things out. Because you never know, like three months later, whether that content, that urgency of that learning is still necessary because right. the market could change or the world can change. But then the next part is over time, you start to get patterns of, wait a minute, there's this content that now six, eight months is still relevant. Okay. Mm. Now let's put that through a more pro proper delivery system because one, we know it was effective Two, like we knew it was, um, uh, people engaged with it and it impacted their work. So you're 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 almost introducing like a, a design cycle into right. the way learning is developed and uh it probably happens in like small bursts but like here's how you find the right blend of just in time versus uh top down traditional and i guess if you're picking where to start it's all cyclical but you start with the just in time because that's going to be appropriately responsive to the shifts in the market or the changes or the, the that urgency that comes from you know, the C-suite saying, whoa, this is our new priority. Let's, let's, let's get to it. Interesting. And now as, as, as an educator, right? So what's, what's your take on the online courses vis-a-vis -vis or um, offline physical uh, courses to conduct a training? Like, do you have any uh, perspective on that? Like which one, where we are heading to uh, and then which are like more efficient and, and, and or, or they all both play different roles? I think they both play different roles. I think it's a matter of um, what you as a learner want and need and what's, what's best. I think, again, this is where you can differentiate between content and experience. Uh, mm. I've had a lot of fun taking, um, mm. oh, well, wait, wait, let me peel back. So with online courses, even there, there's different types of things. There's self-paced with no instructor. There's self-paced that's got some instructor video. Then there's synchronous where you're actually following along with the cohort and then mm. there's small and then there's large cohort sizes like these MOOCs and stuff like that. So even each of those have their affordances and limitations. And it's all about, again, not saying like, oh, well, this is the best way or one of these approaches can change the game for all of education, but rather it's like, no, every one of these can do some things really great. And then mm. also suffers in some areas. It's just about understanding what's good and, and, <laughs> and not so great. And then being informed and being like, you know what? I want to go teach myself Python because I'm brand new to coding and I heard that that's a good entry uh, level language to get started. So I have so many choices for me as a learner. Do I need an expert who can help me untangle hmm. the, the lessons that I see? Or, um, or, like, or can I watch the video of somebody delivering it? Or can I read it? Or can hmm. I just be given 
you know, snippets of code that have instructions built in and tinker with it. So those are all different learning styles, <laughs> and it depends on the learner as far as which one will be best. Interesting. Um, thank you so much, Brishan, uh, uh, for sharing that. We're almost at the end of the conversations. I want to talk, like, take a brief minute talk about you. Uh, so in your journey uh, through music, uh, teaching, educating, and then uh, working working on the on your startup, what are like some of the ingredients that has really helped you uh, personally stay relevant and successful so far? I think this connects to your curiosities around you know reskilling and staying on top of things that. Uh, I've always kind of functioned with my interests in many different areas, but I've never seen any of them as like just an add-on or a side hustle or a side project. But one thing is always continuously influencing the other. Like I don't think I would be, you know, have it, I, would, I don't think I would have been able to have the influence I've had with Explain Everything as far mm -hmm. as its impact on the EDU market if I wasn't simultaneously a practicing teacher. And so this is why even now, like I still continue to teach uh, over at Columbia because uh, I, I just, I enjoy it. But I also know that I'm always in a constant position of empathy of the other mm. people I'm trying to serve. So if our product is being used by instructors, instructional designers, teachers, and students, I'm also simultaneously operating from their perspective. And that helps me be able to provide a better experience. So I think it's always about like thinking about how all of your other like side experiences or, or like when you're in a learning mode, it's not just about the content. Oh, this is also making me a better listener. Oh, this mm -hmm. is also making me a better expressor of my understanding. You know, even though you might be expressing understanding, learning about some new big data topic, but in the end, that's going to make you a better expressor to your teammates, to your colleagues, to your manager. So it's a matter of intentionally connecting those pieces, which I think is the key. Interesting. Uh, thank you for for sharing that. By the way, so uh, one more thing uh, I ask all all of the all of the visitors uh, or guests uh, on the podcast is a recommendation on book that they that they they want to recommend to our 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 readers and listeners. Do you do you have a book that you want to recommend? Sure. So one of my favorite books that I've read so far in uh, in 2018 is called The Storytelling Edge. And this is, it comes from uh, Joe Lazowskis and Shane Snow. Shane Snow wrote Smart Cuts. Mm. Um, and they, uh, they are from a company called Contently. And they've broken down the art of telling a story in, in such a magical way uh, and in such an accessible way. And it, 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 it's, it's pretty brilliant. So even if you're not a person who presents or talks or shares or anything like that, um, I also think by reading this, it makes you a better consumer of information because mm. you can understand better the way that stories are constructed. So I, I think it's a, it's a really terrific read. Interesting. Uh, with that, thank you so much, Rishan. Uh, before we part ways, do you have any closing, closing remark for, for our listeners and viewers that you want to share? Uh, just, uh, you know, thanks so much for, for, for listening. If you need to get in touch or follow me, you could follow me at Rishan Richards on Twitter. Um, and of course, check out explaineverything.com. And uh, I'm always very responsive and happy uh, to continue conversations because for me, that's part of how I learn. Interesting. With that, thank you so much uh, again, Rishan. And you're always welcome on the show uh, back. Uh, do uh, 
love to back you in couple of months uh, discussing your journey and and wish you nothing but success with explain everything and definitely i'll i'll make a point a note to check it out and uh, whenever you're in boston uh, give her holler uh, we'll 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 chat we'll meet and with that thank you so so much for for your time my pleasure thank you so much uh, i thought i was sick of home but actually i was homesick never really knew that i would have to grow up so quick i'm so uncomfortable don't know anybody here just a couple dudes that i met once that's it and i go into the booth feeling nervous got butterflies in my stomach like i'm so worthless is the mic gone i don't know how to work this inside i'm breaking down i hope i'm not up on a certain